We the People friends, every week I ask you to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Here's why it's so important. Ratings and reviews help new listeners find out about us and learn from us. So if you're enjoying the show, please search We the People on Apple Podcasts on your iPhone. Scroll down and click write a review. There have been a bunch of great reviews recently. They're so much appreciated. And please add to them. Leave a message to let us know that you're enjoying We the People and help others find us and learn. And now, on to the show. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. On November 4th, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, a case that could have important implications for the future of the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment and anti-discrimination law. On today's episode, we will explore the constitutional implications of the case and its importance. I'm joined by two of America's leading experts on the Constitution. Jonathan H. Adler is the inaugural Johann Verheim Memorial Professor of Law and Director of the Coleman P. Burke Center for Environmental Law at the Case Western Reserve University School of Law. Professor Adler is author or editor of seven books, including Business and the Roberts Court. He's also a contributing editor to National Review Online and a regular contributor to the legal blog, The Volokh Conspiracy. Jonathan, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. Great to be here. And Leah Lippman is assistant professor of law at Michigan Law, where she teaches and writes on constitutional law, federal post-conviction review, and federal sentencing. She's also a regular contributor to the Take Care blog and one of the hosts and creators of the Supreme Court podcast, Strict Scrutiny. Leah, it's wonderful to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. Jonathan, let's begin with you. Tell us about the stakes of the Fulton case and what our listeners should know at the outset. Well, in this case uh, involves uh, the city of Philadelphia has adopted a rule that providers of certain foster care services shall not discriminate on traditional bases like uh, race and sex, but they added a prohibition on discrimination on sexual orientation. And Catholic Social Services argues that uh, they can't comply with this non-discrimination requirement uh, and they argue that this violates their free exercise rights and First Amendment religious liberty rights, whereas the city of Philadelphia claims that this is basically a neutral, generally applicable non-discrimination requirement for city contractors. So what's ultimately at issue is how broadly uh, we interpret the sort of accommodation that is required to religious entities within certain types of government programs. Leah, what would you add to Jonathan's description of the facts of the case and the main constitutional issues at stake? I think what I'd add is just the precise part of the foster care program that is actually at issue in this case, because the Catholic Social Services and other agencies offer a variety of services as part of the foster care program, and the specific term that they are challenging relates to agencies' certification of prospective foster care parents. So it's not about placing children with particular families, nor is it about offering a home for children in the foster care system. It is instead a contract to certify whether prospective foster parents meet the city's statutory criteria for serving as foster care parents. And the question is whether the city of Philadelphia must offer that contract to Catholic social services without requiring it to comply with a term or condition that it requires of all other contractors. 
Jonathan, that question about whether or not the Catholic social services should be viewed as an independent contractor or an employee or agent of the city was crucial. It was the first question that Chief Justice Roberts asked, and uh, Justice Thomas picked up on it as well. What is at stake in that question, and what's your view about whether the city is a contractor or employee? Well, so from the standpoint of Catholic Social Services, their view is is that they've played a role in placing children in foster care for a long period of time before the city was involved, and that the city has essentially taken over the arrangement of foster care services, and um, by imposing this requirement on them is displacing them. They like to characterize themselves almost as if they're a licensee. Now, it didn't sound to me, at least, that many of the justices were convinced by that characterization, but the way they are approaching it is that this is a question of whether or not they are going to be permitted to continue to play a role as one of the many agencies um, that certifies uh, families for the placement of foster care children. And as you noted, the Chief Justice right off the bat said, well, this looks kind of like a contract relationship because the city pays Catholic social services and other agencies that provide this service for the function of, among other things, evaluating families for the placement of foster care children. And since it's the city paying Catholic social services, they certainly look like they're a contractor because they are being paid for a service they are providing for the city. I think one of the arguments that Catholic social services makes in response is that they are one of many entities that provides this service and that they are essentially selected by the couples or by the families that want to use them, to certify them. And so their involvement in this program does not exclude anyone from being a foster care parent uh, because individuals that might not share their values or they might not be willing to certify would be able to participate as foster care parents by going through a different entity than Catholic Social Services. Leah, Justice Alito did ask, as as Jonathan suggests, who has actually been denied the right to be a foster parent? Isn't it true that Catholic Social Services hasn't prevented any gay or lesbian couple from being certified? To what degree is that dispositive for Justice Alito? And tell us more about whether viewing Catholic Social Services as a contractor or an employee has broader implications for anti-discrimination law. So... Justice Alito's point might be correct with respect to Catholic social services, but there was evidence that another foster care agency had refused to engage in the certification process with a same-sex couple on the basis of religious objections, and that's actually what precipitated the investigation, a news story that led to the city revisiting its contracts with foster care agencies, such as CSS. So even though CSS in particular might not have refused to serve same-sex couples, it's now effectively said, you know, we would prefer not to certify them. And there is evidence that other agencies have already done that. You know, the significance of the contractor designation is as follows. No one questions that the city of Philadelphia, if it was carrying on all of these certifications itself, could say, well, we basically have an all-comers policy As long as you meet the statutory criteria for serving as a foster care parent, you know, you would provide a good home for a foster care child, then we will certify you as potentially eligible and put you in the pool of foster care parents. And the question is, well, does the case become 
different if the city kind of outsources that function to different private agencies and engages them as contractors performing a function that the city would otherwise be performing itself. So that's a potential designation. And that has, you know, roots in many other areas of law, you know, in free speech, as well as religious liberty, where the government is entitled to basically act as an employer and say, well, if you are going to work with us or work for us, you have to abide by these conditions, even though it couldn't impose those conditions as generally applicable rules on absolutely everyone. Jonathan, Neil Katyal and Jeff Fisher, arguing for the city of Philadelphia, said if the court allows Catholic social services to claim an exemption to Philadelphia's non-discrimination law, it would radiate beyond foster care and would allow private contractors to refuse to provide services to religious groups, for example, from Buddhist to Baptist, if those contractors cite their own religious convictions. And, and Jeff Fisher went further and said that they were pushing for a rule that would allow police officers to decline to enforce laws if they cite religious reasons. Uh, what was the response to that argument? And what do you think of it? Well, so I think they, they made two points there. One is, is that is that if religious objections are applicable here, it could apply much more broadly. Uh, the, the primary response is, is that because there are a range of entities providing these services, that no individual will be denied the ability to be a foster parent because if Catholic social services won't uh, certify them as as being an acceptable uh, family for placement, somebody else would. There is a, that they can be referred to another entity that also participates in the program. Uh, that be willing to do that. And multiple times in the argument, the attorneys for Catholic Social Services maintained at least that they do in fact and would in fact make those sorts of referrals. My own view is I think that Catholic Social Services arguments made purely on what we would characterize as employment division versus Smith grounds as a contractor are difficult. And I think the justices were somewhat skeptical. I think their primary arguments against that are one, that the way Philadelphia is approaching them in particular is driven by some sort of animus. And in, in that sense, I think their argument is trying to create a parallel between this case and Masterpiece Cake Shop, the case where um, the baker uh, was held to be violating anti-discrimination law for refusing to bake a cake to celebrate a same-sex wedding. And the Supreme Court there ultimately said that the state's decision was driven at least in part by anti-religious animus. Catholic Social Services is, is trying to argue that in practice, what Philadelphia is doing is not, in fact, imposing a neutral non-discrimination rule on all contractors, but rather has adopted and is enforcing this rule in a way that is you know, particularly focused on gather uh, Catholic ent entities generally or Catholic social services in particular. And as evidence for that, they claim that the city of Philadelphia is allowed to create exemptions for other providers that do not meet the relevant requirements and that therefore they should be able to uh, have an exemption as well. And that a refusal to give that sort of exemption would be evidence of some sort of anti-religious animus. Leah Jonathan mentioned the Smith case. Justice Amy Coney Barrett jumped right in and said, if you're right that you win even under Smith, why should we even entertain the question about whether to overrule it? And then she very directly asked, what would you replace Smith with? And last question, even if we did overrule Smith, let's take it out of the same-sex marriage context and put it in an interracial marriage context and uh, help unpack the significance of those questions. 
Sure. So Employment Division versus Smith is a 1990 opinion by Justice Scalia um, that held that for purposes of the Free Exercise Clause, where a statute is generally applicable, that is, it doesn't single out a particular religion and it wasn't enacted to target a particular religion, then it's subject to rational basis review, which essentially means it's going to be constitutional. Um, so here, if the non-discrimination provision is generally applicable, then you would think that under Smith, it would be constitutional. Um, so the lawyers for the agency are arguing alternately that it's not generally applicable and that it was enacted out of religious animus. So on the general applicability front, you know, they say, well, you have the ability to grant exemptions, which the city disputes. They say we've never granted an exemption um, to allow agencies to discriminate against same-sex couples. And then on the animus front, you know, they point to some statements that were made when the city first got wind that some agencies were refusing to certify same-sex couples as indicative of religious animus. Um, so if they are correct on either of those fronts, then they would prevail under Smith. I, however, think that this condition is pretty generally applicable. I don't think the mere existence of an exemption can make something not generally applicable. If that were correct, then, for example, the travel ban on several Muslim-majority countries wouldn't be generally applicable since that had several exemptions in it and the ability to grant waivers. Um, and we don't usually think about the ability to grant an exemption as making something not generally applicable. You know, I also don't think that the statements that they have shown in the record are reflective of religious animus, but are instead were made in the context of the city wanting to find ways to continue to work with CSS. So for example, the city has continued to guarantee that it will provide contracts to CSS to perform other functions within the foster care system, just not the ability to certify foster care parents as complying with the statutory criteria for foster care parents if it's unwilling to do that for same-sex couples. But if they would win under Smith, then perhaps that's a reason not to overturn Smith, um, as Justice Barrett noted. But at least four justices on the court have already indicated some interest in overturning Smith. So Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Alito, and Justice Thomas have all signed statements indicating that they would be open to overturning Smith in a future case. Um, but this just might not end up being that case. However, I think that even if the court sticks with Smith in this particular case, they're likely to point to it in the future as evidence that Smith Smith is not capable of being consistently applied or generating consistent results. We saw Justice Alito, for example, noting or at least suggesting that this case indicates that somehow Smith is unworkable if, you know, the parties were disputing about whether the relevant evidence would mean that they win or lose under Smith. So I think that answered most of your questions, but I apologize if I forgot some in there. <laughs> <laughs> it answered them very well. And the, the final question that Justice Barrett introduced is this question of discrimination against interracial couples. And it was picked up by several of the justices, including Justice Sotomayor, who said what's dangerous is the idea that a contractor with a religious belief could come in and say, let's exclude other religions from being families, exclude someone with a disability, or exclude an interracial couple. There was extensive discussion about that, and uh, one of the lawyers for Catholic Social Services suggested that uh, discrimination, avoiding discrimination against interracial couples was a compelling interest, whereas perhaps avoiding discrimination against LGBTQ couples didn't rise to that level. Jonathan, tell us more about that back and forth. Well, yeah. So the reason this issue comes up is because, as Justice Barrett noted in her, her follow-up question about Smith, is that if Smith is overruled, presumably what replaces it is a rule that requires the government to demonstrate a compelling interest to infringe upon the free exercise of religion. And then the question would be, does the government have a compelling interest here? 
And she posed the question of, well, you know, preventing discrimination against interracial couples, would that be uh, something that the government would have a compelling interest in? And I don't think any attorney is going to argue the contrary there. The interesting doctrinal question is simply that the court has not made explicit that discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation triggers strict scrutiny and therefore is at least viewed under current doctrine as being equivalent to racial discrimination. So I think that's the basis for the response to that argument, but I don't think it's an argument that um, I'm, I'm skeptical whether or not that argument would get five votes. The, the government has a compelling interest in preventing certain sorts of discrimination and not others. My own view is that a stronger response would have been something to the effect of the government does have a compelling interest that no one is excluded from this program and allowing different providers to provide this certification process for different families uh, doesn't necessarily result in any exclusion. And then the question would be whether or not avoiding the stigmatization, which necessarily comes from Catholic social services or anybody else refusing to engage with or interact with a couple, does preventing that stigma uh, rise to a compelling interest? And again, I I think that's a a hard argument, but I think that would be a a stronger argument for Catholic social services than simply saying there is no interest here. And I think one thing they tried to set forth to buttress that argument is the idea that the act of certifying or or, um, validating a couple Uh, is a form of speech. And that to say that this couple satisfies the Catholic social services view of of what is a proper home for a foster child is a form of speech where Catholic social services would have to endorse the family structure uh, at issue or have to endorse a same-sex couple. And I think there are some parallels here to uh, some of the contraception mandate cases where you have a religious organization arguing that something that appears to be a fairly ministerial or administrative task is in fact freighted with all sorts of substantive speech content that the religious entity claims is there but that outsiders or third parties viewing it wouldn't see or necessarily perceive as um, involving uh, First Amendment uh, speech aspects. Leah, there was indeed a debate about whether discrimination against interracial marriage should be treated differently than discrimination against LGBTQ people who get married. Justice Alito, in his discussion with Mr. Mupan, who was arguing for Catholic Social Services, said, didn't the court in Obergefell, that's the marriage equality decision, say that there are honorable and respectable reasons for continuing to oppose the same-sex marriage? Would the court say the same thing about interracial marriage? What was the significance of Justice Alito's suggestion and what implications could it have if it was adopted more broadly on the court? Uh, What he was getting at is something that you and Jonathan were talking about, which is, you know, they are looking for a way to say that the city can require agencies to agree not to discriminate on the basis of race, but they can't require agencies not to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. And so Justice Alito was suggesting that perhaps because racial discrimination is worse in the sense that, you know, if you engage in or support racial discrimination, there aren't, you know, honorable reasons to do so, but perhaps there are if you engage in discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, that's a reason to treat them differently. Um, But I think that the, you know, premise of that is a little bit dubious once you try to graft that on to existing First Amendment doctrine, because usually the protections for, you know, free speech and the agency is making a free speech claim don't depend on whether the speech that you are engaging in is good, 
bad or, you know, we like it or we don't. And similarly, we don't usually say that the protections for religious freedom depend on whether we think your religious beliefs or practices are good, bad, honorable or not. And so it's a little bit weird, even if you, you know, are willing to grant the premise what the significance of that premise would be. You know, the other interesting exchanges that were related to this were about whether the government would also have a compelling interest in preventing discrimination on the basis of sex. Because while discrimination on the basis of race is subject to the strictest form of scrutiny, strict scrutiny, discrimination on the basis of sex is subject to a lesser form of scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny. And in fact, in Justice Ginsburg's opinion, Sessions versus Morales-Santana, she suggested that discrimination on the basis of sex was subject to the same level of scrutiny as discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. So then Justice Kagan tried to get the Solicitor General to say, do you think that the government has a compelling interest in preventing discrimination on the basis of sex? And the Solicitor General was unwilling to concede that it would. And so I think one possible implication of the agency and the federal government's position is they don't have a compelling interest in eradicating discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and sex, and then they cannot force contractors to agree not to discriminate on the basis of sex. Jonathan, what did you make of Justice Kagan's exchange with the counselor to the Solicitor General on the question of whether gender discrimination would be as protected as speech involving interracial couples? And also, what's your response to her point that it's odd doctrinally to import that into First Amendment law? Well, I certainly was struck as well by uh, Justice Alito's framing of the question about whether or not Catholic Social Services has this right being dependent upon uh, whether the court, the government, or anyone else approves of the speech inherent in the conduct. If we accept the premise, and it's a debatable premise, obviously that certifying a family is a speech that is protected by the First Amendment, then it shouldn't matter whether or not we think it's the best speech in the world or the most awful reprehensible speech. And to hear a Supreme Court justice suggest otherwise was certainly jarring at argument. That's not the way we evaluate that. And I think it perhaps reflects an intuitive understanding that that certifying that a couple satisfies the requirements of state law does not necessarily entail validating, approving, or communicating any other message about that couple. It is merely saying, these are the boxes that the state requires us to check. We have looked and those boxes are checked. And in fact, in a different exchange with Justice Kagan and uh, I think it was Jeff Fisher, the issue even came up about, look, you know, Catholic Social Services wants to say elsewhere, look, we're not saying anything about whether or not this couple is moral or satisfies church teaching or anything else. Fine, because all they are being asked to do is certify that a couple satisfies the state's requirements. On the other exchange, I think it's a good example of why Justice Kagan is viewed as one of the court's more incisive and careful questioners. I mean, she, rather than allow the government and Catholic social services attorneys to kind of cordon off sexual orientation, um, you know, she wanted to connect it to discrimination on the basis of sex and put the government in this odd position of trying to argue that the federal government or governments generally do not have a compelling interest to prohibit sex discrimination. And I think that's an argument, if it were accepted, could have all sorts of implications for government contracting, uh, which I think, again, is why Justice Kagan uh, raised that issue. Well, let's explore those implications so our listeners have a sense of what's at stake in the case. As I mentioned, Neil Katyal arguing for the 
city said that if you accept the Catholic Social Services argument, then another contractor could say, we won't allow Baptists, we won't allow Buddhists. And in that sense, religion will be pitted against religion. Leah, play out the implications of that. And if Catholic Social Services wins broadly, what kind of broad exemptions from anti-discrimination laws could be created? Sure. So, you know, one set of implications concerns the implications and the ability for entities to engage in discrimination against other religions, you know, that they don't support or that they, you know, don't recognize as valid under their own faith. But I think the broader implications concern what other kinds of government services or government contracts might be able to get an exemption from non-discrimination provisions. So another government service that the government will sometimes, you know, engage in contracting for is healthcare. You will have some government-owned hospitals or some government-run medical programs sign contracts with private entities, and they will ask those private entities to agree not to discriminate in the provision of healthcare services on a variety of characteristics. And I think that there's a real concern that a ruling for the agency in this case would allow future healthcare providers to claim an exemption from non-discrimination provisions that the government asks them to undertake when they are providing healthcare services on behalf of the government, whether it's you know a Medicaid program, whether it is a Title X program regarding family planning services. There are a bunch of you know government subsidized or government sponsored healthcare programs that private entities are really on the front lines of. I think that there's also some concern about you know universities. That's another, you know, circumstance where, you know, sometimes the government is a really big employer and they, again, outsource a lot of its functions to private contractors and private employers. And if you allow all of the individuals that you have a contract with as employees to exempt themselves from generally applicable non-discrimination conditions, then again, you are potentially giving government officials a free pass to opt out of non-discrimination provisions. And we just don't know how the court is going to write this opinion. And depending what they say, you know, they could go big or they could try to write it narrowly. But, you know, the implications could be potentially quite broad. Jonathan, your thoughts on what a going big would look like Justice Barrett asked a dramatic hypothetical. She said, let's imagine the state takes over all the hospitals and says, from now on, we'll contract with private entities to run them. And so there's a Catholic hospital and gets a contract with the city to run it. And the contract says that every hospital has to perform abortions. What was the implication of that question? And how does it cut? Well, I mean, I think it certainly accepts the frame of Catholic social services, which is that they used to provide foster care placement until before the city and the state were involved. They were doing so for decades uh, and that they're essentially being displaced and that providing these sorts of services is seen as something that's important within the church and within institutions that are of the faith. And I think that's why Justice Barrett asked this question. And I think, you know, Neil Katyal, I don't think had the most effective response. In effect, he tried to argue that this was a, a hypothetical that didn't work because this sort of monopolization would not happen and that it's not fair to characterize this as monopolization. As I think Leah mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, what's at issue is one one element within the foster care process, which is the identification and certification of families to be eligible to be foster care parents, that there are lots of other things that are involved in these programs that are not implicated in this case, or at least not necessarily implicated. And so part of Newcastle's argument is that you don't have the sort of displacement that exists in Justice Barrett's hypothetical. In terms of your broader question about, you know, going big or going small, going big 
I think ultimately is implicating Smith. But I came away from the argument thinking that there aren't five votes to use this case as the case to revisit Smith. And there was, in fact, one point in the oral argument where Justice Kavanaugh, it it reminded me of a confirmation hearing. Rather than a question, he went on this long discussion of, you know, why can't we have some sort of compromise in this sort of context? And that, to me, suggested that he at least, uh, and I would assume the chief, would like to find a way to decide this case rather narrowly and either find some aspects of the specific facts of this case to reach a fairly narrow ruling uh, in one direction or the other so as not to implicate the broader questions either about Smith or what it would mean to say that a government contractor necessarily can uh, be exempt from certain sorts of facially neutral requirements on being a government contractor. Leah, let's Stay with the what going big would look like. Jonathan suggests that overturning Smith would be going big. And Justice Barrett asked, what would overturning Smith mean? Would you just return to Sherbert versus Werner, which was the case from 1963 that said that the Free Exercise Clause prohibits the government from setting unemployment benefits so people can observe key religious principles? It was written by Justice Brennan, and it required the state to provide a compelling interest for actions that imposed a substantial burden on free exercise rights. Why is it that resurrecting a decision which was viewed as a liberal decision in its day is so concerning to progressives who are concerned about big exemptions from anti-discrimination laws? And what would resurrecting the Sherbert v. Werner test mean across a range of anti-discrimination laws? I think there's honestly some uncertainty about what resurrecting Sherbert would look like. I think that, you know, some people think that Sherbert itself was not embracing a true form of strict scrutiny, but was instead some kind of balancing test that asks, well, what's the government interest on one side and what is the burden on a religious group or religious practices on another? Um, Part of why the implications, however, are quite broad is that a balancing test by necessity is quite amorphous and we don't exactly know, you know, how courts would apply it. Um, I think in additional concern is that a balancing test in the hands of this court might be selectively applied to preference some religions or some religious beliefs over others, and that the court would be quick to ensure that, you know, burdens do not fall on some religious groups, but not so quick to do so with respect to others. And I think, again, you know, part of the concern about overturning Smith and returning to this balancing test is the reality that we live in a very religiously pluralistic society. You know, many people adhere to a wide variety of religions and have a wide variety of beliefs. Um, And as a result, a lot of laws impose different burdens on different religious groups. And so if you say every single time a generally applicable law that applies to everybody results in differential burdens on different groups, it's subject to some closer judicial scrutiny, well then most laws are going to be subject to closer judicial scrutiny. Most laws are going to be potentially invalid. And I think that that very you know, stark increase in the degree to which courts are scrutinizing generally applicable laws is concerning for people who want courts to be a little bit more deferential to the political branches and allow them to kind of make the judgments about who should be accommodated under what circumstances and do the resulting balancing between, you know, the um, effect on a religious group and the interest to parties who might be harmed by the practices that they're seeking to regulate. 
Jonathan, do you agree that it's a concern about the judges doing the balancing that leads some progressives to resist a resurrection of Sherbert? And is that relevant to Jeff Free Fisher's suggestion that if the court does go broad here, police officers could decline on religious grounds to enforce particular laws, prison guards could insist on evangelizing to inmates, and the implications go on and on. Well, I think it's not just progressives that are concerned about how a balancing test would be applied. We have to remember that Employment Division versus Smith was written by Justice Scalia. And if you think about Smith as part of Justice Scalia's jurisprudence and how it fits in his jurisprudence, Justice Scalia, you know, we think of him as being an originalist and a textualist, but I would argue that he was even more a rules guy. He wanted clear, bright line rules. And his view was that the pre-Smith approach to free exercise was too much of an amorphous balancing test, and it was too hard to develop clear, predictable rules about what the law is and should be. And a rule that neutral laws of general application that are not motivated by anti-religious animus or applied in an anti-religious way should be presumptively constitutional because they apply equally to everyone. And that's a rule that's relatively easy to apply. And I think one can see if one looks at cases involving the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which subjects the federal government to one version of an alternative or or of a non-Smith regime, um, one sees that it's a test that is more difficult to apply and that an individual judge or justice's views of the nature of the religious claims at issue sometimes does influence the way they uh, apply the balancing test. And so I think one of the appeals of Smith and one of the reasons why someone as conservative as Justice Scalia endorsed it was because it provided a clearer, more predictable standard to apply going forward. I think in terms of some of the hypotheticals that Jeff Fisher raised, I think in a lot of those sorts of cases, at least the government could argue that there are compelling interests that would satisfy uh, Sherbert or would satisfy some sort of heightened scrutiny alternative to Smith. But that would be the sort of argument that have to be made. uh, And um, one could certainly imagine that the predictability uh, of those judgments would be less and that governments would be aware that they would be accepting greater litigation risk if they didn't provide greater accommodations to government employees, government contractors, and so on. And so just from the standpoint of administering governmental programs, one benefit of a Smith-type regime is that it's an easier rule to apply. And I think that is interesting that today, while Smith was the product of Justice Scalia, today the justices that generally ally themselves with Justice Scalia are the ones that are most critical of the rule that Justice Scalia gave us. Leah, Jonathan makes the excellent point that Smith was written by Justice Scalia, and Justice Breyer made precisely the same point in his exchange with Jeffrey Fisher. He said what led Justice Scalia to a more absolute rule is he couldn't figure out another one, and if you win, Jeffrey Fisher It's hard to see how a religious group that wants to meet on Sunday and there's a no parking sign and they can't do it and they can't hold a religious service. And if the other side wins, it's pretty hard to see how all sorts of government programs can exist with every religion making exceptions every which way for all kinds of reasons sincerely too. So how did we get to this point where it is the heirs of Justice Scalia on the court who now seem most skeptical of Smith? And what appetite do you see for replacing it? 
Um, you know, I think that there is honestly an appetite to replace Smith. I just don't think that this case is going to be the one to do so, just because I think that the justices who are sympathetic to replacing Smith feel like they can do enough on this fax to narrow Smith or say the agencies here win under Smith. As to why we got to the situation where Justice Scalia's, you know, jurisprudential and ideological errors are repudiating, you know, one of the opinions that he wrote, um, you know, I think it's probably a combination of factors. You know, one is the change or shift in who is seeking religious exemptions now. The groups that are seeking religious exemptions now um, are now seeking exemptions from generally applicable non-discrimination requirements, and they tend to be, you know, claims that the more conservative justices are now more sympathetic to. I think that that is probably part of the story, but there are probably other forces that are just difficult to take account of entirely, um, but that's certainly one of them. Well, we've talked about going big. Now let's talk about going narrow. Jeffrey Fisher said the test that I would say governs, which is really quite narrow because it's a government contracting case, is a test the court laid out in Nassau versus Nelson, where the court asked whether it was a reasonable rule that government was insisting for its contractors. Is that uh, the narrow path, Jonathan? And could you see a majority on the court converging around it? Well, I mean, if if the city of Philadelphia wins, I think that is the narrowest way to do that. And I think if the city of Philadelphia wins, the other thing that the opinion would stress is that this is one element of the broader foster care program. And I would expect the court to also stress that all that Catholic Social Services is doing with regard to this part of the program is certifying that a given family satisfies the requirements of state law and perhaps even making explicit that Catholic Social Services could, in whatever form it needs to, make clear that it is providing this administrative evaluation and not a normative evaluation on the morality of the family arrangement or what have you. Uh, you know, alternatively, I could see a narrow opinion that stresses the fact Catholic Social Services is merely one of many entities that the program as a whole appears to be non-discriminatory in the sense that any family that wants to be a foster family or provide foster care can be certified, if not by Catholic Social Services, then by someone else, and that Catholic Social Services would refer them to another provider, therefore ensuring that the city of Philadelphia is not providing something in a discriminatory way. I, I think that would also be a narrow way to resolve the case. If the court did that, I suspect the court would also uh, likely endorse the claim made by Catholic Social Services that excluding them might come at the risk of reducing the availability of foster care placements. This is certainly a claim that Catholic Social Services has made. I know it's contested. There is empirical research, I think, in both directions about whether or not allowing or disallowing religious institutions to participate affects the ultimate number of families that are available for foster care placement. But if the court were to narrowly decide in their favor, I would assume they would emphasize those factors. Leah, if you were writing a narrow decision, either for the city of Philadelphia or for Catholic Social Services, what would each opinion look like? If I was writing a narrow opinion for the city of Philadelphia, it would be the one that we've been alluding to and that the Chief Justice really floated in the very first question. This is a case involving government contracts, and therefore the test and considerations are just very different. Um, the government is entitled as an employer, you know, when it is, again, you know, delegating its functions to private entities to insist that those entities carry out those functions in the way that the government itself would have. If I was writing a narrow opinion for 
for the agencies, it would probably be a masterpiece cake shop style opinion where I would say that there's evidence that the application or enforcement of this particular condition against this particular agency evidenced animus. And that ruling, you know, by its very nature would just apply to this one contract between the agency and CSS, not even between other agencies within Philadelphia and the city itself. Great. And now I'll ask you, Jonathan, did you see five votes for a narrow opinion after the oral argument? And if so, what does that opinion look like? Well, I did not come away from the oral argument with a clear view of of how I thought the ultimate outcome would be. I think actually one consequence of the telephonic arguments where the justices asked their questions seriatim is that the rhythm of the discussion makes it harder to figure out where the court as a whole is going. And I think one reason for that is most of the justices feel compelled to ask questions to both sides. Now, you did have a couple justices that lobbed softballs, and so I think we can predict a few of them, but I'm not entirely sure uh, where the court as a whole wants to go here. I do, though, think that we are likely to get a narrow opinion. I agree with Leah that even if there are five votes to revisit Smith, this is not the case they're going to do that in. Uh, I think Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett and the Chief Justice, I think, all indicated that they don't see this case as a case to do something sweeping with. And so I expect something narrow. I'm not sure which direction that will be, though. Leah, did you see five votes or more for an opinion on either side? And in fact, there have been multi-partisan majorities in religious freedom cases where Justices Breyer and Kagan joined the more conservative justices on behalf of narrow holdings. Could you imagine a result like that in this case? Um, I didn't really read Justice Breyer in particular to be particularly sympathetic to the agencies here. But I do, however, think that there are clearly at least five votes for the agency here as to what that opinion looks like. um, I think it is probably broader than the opinion I described and instead reads something like, well, given that there are several different agencies who can perform this service, as Jonathan was alluding to, the fact that same-sex couples can't be certified at some unclear number of them is not that substantial a burden. And so to accommodate to the agency's religious beliefs, you know, we will allow them to get this exemption. Uh, I think that that's probably the most likely opinion that will emerge, but it is possible that the court will go bigger than that for the agency. But if I had to guess, I think that's probably what some version of this opinion will look like. Jonathan, to what degree will the addition of Justice Barrett to the court change the debate about religious liberty on the court? And if and when the court does decide to overturn Smith, how dramatic will the consequences be? Well, I think if the court does revisit Smith, the consequences could be quite dramatic. I mean, right now, at least when we're talking about the federal government, we do have something close to a pre-Smith regime under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And many states have similar statutes at the state level that subject state entities and local governments to greater scrutiny than is provided by Smith. Uh, But as I believe Justice Breyer noted at oral argument, since those are statutes, if the legislature believes that that shouldn't apply in a particular context or that the rule needs to be modified, uh, the legislature can do that. If Employment Division versus Smith is modified or overruled, well, it would be a constitutional rule. And so the ability of the legislature to try and fine-tune the accommodation of religious exercise and religious belief in particular contexts would be constrained. And I think that would be quite significant. And I think a real question will be whether or not Justice Barrett, despite whatever views she may have about the importance of religious liberty, is concerned enough about the effects of 
that sort of ruling on the stability of the law and its implications to cause her to stick with her mentor and the rule that Justice Scalia gave us. And, and I think we'll just have to see. Leo, same question to you. How big a deal would it be if Smith were ultimately overturned? And do you have any sense about whether Justice Barrett is inclined to overturn it? Um, you know, if I had to guess, this is not a subject that she has written on as extensively as others. I would probably bet that there are now five votes on the court to overturn Smith. And I do think that her replacing Justice Ginsburg could potentially be significant, even in this case, given that the chief justice started questioning, indicating that he was potentially sympathetic to the argument that the agency here was just a contractor and that the rules for contractors should be different. Um, and the government has more latitude to impose requirements on contractors than it does the general public. So I think that her replacement is already going to prove significant for religious liberty, and it will likely prove more significant in the future. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this very broad-ranging and illuminating argument. Jonathan, the first one is to you. Tell our We the People listeners how you think the case should be resolved. Well, if it were up to me, I, I actually would probably follow the lead of the Chief Justice in viewing this as a very narrow case about contractors and distinguishing it from cases like Espinoza and other cases we've seen recently where the court has uh, broadly protected religious institutions from exclusion from government programs and government benefits, but distinguishing that from something like acting as a governmental contractor, particularly given the very narrow task that Catholic Social Services provides in this certification process. I think that sort of very narrow ruling about the specific activities involved here would be a very you know, appropriate ruling and certainly would be consistent with the minimalist approach that the chief justice has tried to bring to the court since he's been chief. But as Leah just noted, you know, whether or not he has four votes to go along with that sort of minimalist approach is definitely up in the air. And Leah, the last word is to you. Please tell our Wonderful We the People listeners, how you think the case should be resolved. 2020 is a weird year, and in this particular circumstance, I find myself in agreement with both Jonathan Adler and the Chief Justice. That is also how I would write the opinion, that there are different rules when we are dealing with government contracts, particularly for government contracts that are pertaining to a very narrow set of services here, certification of foster parents as complying with the statutory criteria. So I would just say, because the government has the ability to impose on its contractors the ability to perform this narrow task in compliance with non-discrimination norms, that's the end of the case. Thank you so much, Jonathan Adler and Leah Littman, for an inspiring and illuminating discussion and for an unexpected note of bipartisan comedy during these fractious times. It's much needed and much appreciated. Jonathan, Leah, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Ashley Kemper, Mac Taylor, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone, anywhere, who is eager to be illuminated by constitutional debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people from across the country who are inspired by our urgently important mission of bringing together people of different perspectives for civil and illuminating constitutional dialogue and debate. You can support our mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.